0: That's Talk radio.
1: everybody. Welcome to the show. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, So Joe Biden has tripled down and potentially even quadrupled down on getting out of Afghanistan. Um, He gave a speech the other day, two days ago. We're going to run through. I'm going to show you uh, highlights from that. Um, There's a lot to say about it, so we're going to do exactly that, say a lot about it. Um, The Taliban is doing a PR charm offensive that we're going to talk about. I have a clip. One of the the spokespeople went on Sky News, laid out their new stance on women's rights. (laughs) Um, And it's sort of amazing to watch this unfold. I mean, I know it's just a PR charm offensive, and the whole point is to gain international legitimacy, but it's still fascinating to watch. Um, Trump, weighed in yet again on the Afghanistan situation. Clearly, I mean, I don't even need to say this, but a lot of Afghanistan stuff today. Um, Maduro weighed in on the Afghanistan situation, and he said something absolutely fascinating that I'm going to share with you. Um, I got Charlie Kirk. I got Sean Hannity. Uh, Chris Cuomo returns from, quote-unquote, vacation and talks about the Andrew Cuomo thing. Um, We got in fighting among right-wing Cretans, this is something you're going to get a kick out of. Imagine Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, who's all in on the stop-the-steal fraudulent election stuff. He and Rick Wiles of True News are going at it. That is amazing. Um, and then also got some real substantive stuff on the workers' rights front. You're not going to want to miss this. Uh, Nabisco apparently treats their workers incredibly terrible. Um, and More Perfect Union is out with a new video. The people who make Oreos and Rich crackers, which unfortunately are both absolutely delicious, um, they are striking. So we'll talk about that. Sit back, relax, take it easy, and uh, let's go ahead and dive into all this. So a couple days ago, Joe Biden came out and um, delivered a response to the media hysteria over what's happening in Afghanistan, Now, I have to say, I was wavering there for a second on old Joe. I was 50-50. I was agnostic. I did not know what direction he was going to go in. Because when I tell you everybody was coming after him, I mean everybody. All of MSNBC, all of CNN, all of Fox News, the entire Republican establishment, most of the Democratic establishment. In fact, for a long time, I didn't see anybody who actually spoke out in favor of Biden on this front. Eventually, I did see Ilhan Omar come out and tweeted something in support of ending endless war. uh, and There were a handful of others. But by and large, it was like unanimous across the board. All the elites were like, this is terrible. This is wrong. And the implication is you shouldn't pull out of Afghanistan either at all or you shouldn't have pulled out of Afghanistan in the way you did, which is, of course, the process hand-wringing, which is, um, you know, it's easier said than done for you to, to nitpick after the fact. Uh, at the end of the day, even though I have my own criticisms, on the broader point, I think Biden is correct to pull out of Afghanistan. And, uh, in fact, I give him even more credit because I, was, I didn't think he would really do it. I thought that we'd be in a situation where he pulled a Trump and left 2,000 troops there, 3,000 troops there. Now, he did send in five or 6,000 um, while Kabul was falling to the Taliban, but it was very clearly just to secure the airport to get out our people. So, I mean, in all seriousness, if I was in Joe Biden's shoes and the exact same set of facts was presented to me, I would do the exact same thing that Joe Biden did. I would say, yeah, well, we got to get out our people. So, of course, you got to secure the airport. You have to send in more troops. Um, are they going to stay there and fight the Taliban? It's over, son. It's done, The Taliban has taken Kabul. There is going to be no, we're going to stay there on, at just the airport and fight the Taliban, who now have control of Kabul, Kandahar, Jalalabad, and, like, every other area in Afghanistan, it's over. It's done. There is no, like, these, are, these actually are not combat troops. These are troops to secure the airport and get our people out. So, anyway, uh, Joe Biden came out, gave a speech. I was watching, uh, sort of cringing, wincing, like, oh, Joe, what are you going to say? What are you going to do? Well, I don't, uh-oh, uh-oh. Uh, turns out, no. He largely came through. Now, of course, since he came through and I think made the correct points, um, yet again, everybody in the media is going after him viciously. And uh, both party leadership structures are going after him viciously. So let me go ahead and show you um, a little bit of his speech here. It's a little bit long, but I'm showing you, like, really important parts. Let's take a look, and then I'll break it down.
2: We went to Afghanistan almost 20 years ago with clear goals, get those who attacked us on September 11, 2001, and make sure al-Qaeda could not use Afghanistan as a base from which to attack us again. We did that. We severely degraded al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. We never gave up the hunt for Osama bin Laden, and we got him. That was a decade ago. Our mission in Afghanistan was never supposed to have been nation-building. It was never supposed to be creating a unified, centralized democracy. Our only vital mass interest in Afghanistan remains today what has always been, preventing a terrorist attack on American homeland. I've argued for many years that our mission should be narrowly focused on counterterrorism, not counterinsurgency or nation building. That's why I opposed the surge when it was proposed in 2009 when I was vice president. And that's why as president, I'm adamant we focus on the threats we face today in 2021, not yesterday's threats. I stand squarely behind my decision. After 20 years, I've learned the hard way that there was never a good time to withdraw US forces. That's why we're still there. We were clear-eyed about the risk. We planned for every contingency, but I always promised the American people that I would be straight with you. The truth is, this did unfold more quickly than we had anticipated. So what's happened? Afghanistan political leaders gave up and fled the country. The Afghan military collapsed, sometime without trying to fight. If anything, the developments of the past week reinforced that ending U.S. military involvement in Afghanistan now was the right decision. American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. We spent over a trillion dollars we trained and equipped an Afghan military force of some 300,000 strong, incredibly well equipped, a force larger in size than the militaries of many of our NATO allies. We gave them every tool they could need. We paid their salaries, provided for the maintenance of their Air Force, something that Taliban doesn't have. Taliban does not have an Air Force. We provided close air support. We gave them every chance to determine their own future. What we could not provide them was the will to fight for that future, With some very brave and capable Afghan special forces units and soldiers. But if Afghanistan is unable to mount any real resistance of the Taliban now, there is no chance that one year, one more year, five more years, or 20 more years, the U.S. military boots on the ground would have made any difference. So I am left again to ask of those who argue that we should stay. How many more generations of America's daughters and sons would you have me send to fight Afghanistan's Afghanistan civil war when Afghan troops will not? How many more lives, American lives, is it worth? How many endless rows of headstones at like Arlington National Cemetery? I'm clear on my answer. I will not repeat the mistakes we've made in the past—mistake of staying and fighting indefinitely in a conflict that is not in the national interest of the United States of doubling down on the Civil War in a foreign country, of attempting to remake a country through the endless military deployments of U.S. forces. Those are the mistakes we cannot continue to repeat. I know there are concerns about why we did not begin evacuating Afghan civilians sooner. Part of the answer is some of the Afghans did not want to leave earlier, still hopeful for their country, and part of it because the Afghan government and its supporters discourage us from organizing a mass exodus to avoid triggering, as they said, a crisis of confidence. American troops are performing this mission as professionally and as effectively as they always do, but it is not without risks. As we carry out this departure, we have made it clear to the Taliban, if they attack our personnel or disrupt our operation, the U.S. presence will be swift and the response will be swift and forceful. I will not pass this responsibility on on to a fifth president. I will not mislead the American people by claiming that just a little more time in Afghanistan will make all the difference, nor will I shrink from my share of responsibility for where we are today and how we must move forward from here. I am president of the United States of America, and the buck stops with me. I made a commitment to the brave men and women who served this nation that I wasn't going to ask them to continue to risk their lives. In a military action that should have ended up long ago. Our leaders did that in Vietnam when I got here as a young man. I will not do it in Afghanistan. I know my decision will be criticized, but I would rather take all that criticism and pass this decision on to another president of the United States, yet another one, a fifth one.
1: So there you have it. Uh, let's run through a bunch of the stuff here. And then I'm going to tell you... Um, what I think really went on behind the scenes, which led us to the withdrawal going the exact way it did and which led us to the Taliban taking over Kabul in lightning-quick fashion. So um, he says, listen, the original reason we were told we're going is to get those who attacked us on 9-11 and to, well, basically get Osama bin Laden, and then they move the goalpost to get all of al-Qaeda w- whoever in al-Qaeda happens to be in Afghanistan and is being protected by the Taliban. On both those fronts, mission accomplished. And uh, I would say, correct, he's 100% right about that. But then you'd also have to ask, we achieved those goals as of 2011. Al-Qaeda was already decimated in Afghanistan, and we got Osama bin Laden in 2011 in Pakistan, not even in Afghanistan. So if he really believes the thing he's saying, then Biden was probably behind the scenes in favor of getting out of Afghanistan all the way back when he was vice president in Obama's first term. And it makes you wonder how many conversations they had behind the scenes where perhaps Biden was telling Obama, I think you should get out, and I think you should get out now. Because if he believes what he's saying, then he probably made that argument behind the scenes back then. And there's no reason to not think he means it because he's following through on it right now. Which then begs the question, well... Honestly, how much of a cuck was Obama to the Pentagon and the generals and the deep state and our intelligence agencies if he had his vice president telling him, hey, we should probably get out skis, And he ended up not only keeping uh, soldiers there, but doing the surge. Biden points out, hey, I don't know how many of you guys remember this, but I was against the surge when we did the surge in Afghanistan. Yet again, another area of just 100 percent in agreement with Joe Biden. Um, then he goes on to say, we're not supposed to be nation building. Guys, I watched a, a number of documentaries on Afghanistan since the fall of Kabul, and without a doubt, we were nation-building. And clearly, Biden is saying we shouldn't at any point have been nation-building. So that was wrong-headed. And if you watch the frontline documentary I watched called Obama's War, um, you'll get the sense that it's almost like cartoonishly and comically inept nation-building. We're like, there's no way at any step that it was gonna work, but we tried to do it anyway, which makes you think about what are the more ulterior motives, and you know, why are we really there, and who's really pulling the strings and making the decisions, and then of course, you get the uncomfortable answers about natural resources and the military industrial complex and imperialism and geopolitics and trying to keep China and Russia at bay and all those things. But I digress from that point. You've heard me make that point a thousand times over. Um, he said, quote, I stand squarely behind my decision. That sort of gangster, Joe, with everybody and their mother coming after him vociferously. He's sticking his middle finger up to the establishment. He really is, man. You got to call balls and strikes. And this is me calling balls and strikes. And Joe Biden is doing something here that I think is genuinely brave. He said, uh, quote, there's never a good time to withdraw U.S. troops. That's right, no matter wh- when or where you're withdrawing troops, all of U.S. media, all of the Pentagon, all the intelligence agencies, and the leadership of both parties are going to come after you. He's 100% right. Uh, he's also dead honest when he says, it did unfold more quickly than we anticipated. Uh, he said, and he's getting shit for this next thing. He said, Afghan leaders gave up. The military collapsed without trying to fight. Um, so on this front, the point that a lot of people on the left are making is like, man, it's really shitty to sort of blame Afghans for what's going on here when really the blame is squarely with the United States of America because we shouldn't have invaded in the first place and we shouldn't have occupied it and we shouldn't have jacked the natural resources and we shouldn't have micromanaged and we shouldn't have been nation-building and so on and so forth. So I agree with that criticism, but I also think I would take away any value judgment Because I I have no value judgment on the fact that a lot of them didn't fight. But I do think that what Biden is saying is pretty objective. When you have 300,000 soldiers and the opposition is only 75,000, you can beat them if you want to beat them. All you need is, like, the will, and you need, you know, minimal ability to strategize. Any mediocre general in such a situation could probably bring about victory. And we didn't get it. So I don't, I don't blame the people of Afghanistan uh, who were maybe in the military and didn't fight, because if I was in that position, I wouldn't have fought either. I mean, it's effectively a fake country that we're propping up. It's a total house of cards. So I'm not blaming them, but I absolutely think that what Joe Biden is saying is true. And in terms of the leaders giving up, well, there, there's no doubt, Ghani was outskis the second that he heard a Taliban fighter fart. He was gone. He's like, Tajikistan, what's up, dog? I'm coming. And we just learned today that he had $169 million in cash, U.S. dollars with him when he left. You're telling me that's not giving up? Not only is that giving up, it's exposing the fact it was a corrupt grift all along, and this guy is a puppet leader. So, I mean, again, he's getting crap for that, and I agree with some of the criticisms, but also if you take away the idea that there's a value judgment there, then I I think what Biden is saying is rather objective. You wouldn't have had the Afghanistan government collapse in, like, a week if, if there was more of a will. Now, one of the other counterarguments is, actually, on, Vice News was on the ground, and they were embedded with the elite Afghan special forces. And they were like, don't tell me these guys don't have the will to fight. They have the will to fight. To which I respond, you're 100% right. Those guys have the will to fight, but how many elite special forces are there? Out of the 300,000, there's only, like, one or 2,000 of them. So don't tell me that because one or 2,000 are good fighters and they have the will to fight and they're doing everything they can, and my heart genuinely bleeds for them, but don't tell me because there's like one or 2,000 of them that therefore the whole 300,000 military, which we equipped to the tune of $9 billion, that the rest of them want to fight because that's fundamentally not true. Then he makes what I think is a devastating point. He says this reinforced my decision that I'm right. The fact that it collapsed so quickly just reinforces my decision because that means if we stayed one more year or five more years or 20 more years, It wouldn't have made any difference at all. Whenever we got out, no matter when it is, if the year was 2106 and we tried to get out, Afghanistan would have become Talibanistan instantly, instantly. He says, how can you send somebody from the United States? How many more generations of our sons and daughters are you going to send to fight and die for somebody else's fight when a lot of people who are involved in that fight don't even want to take on the fight themselves? Are you going to send somebody from Arkansas? I mean, it's just, it, it's a joke. He says we spent a trillion dollars, by the way, massive underestimate. We've already spent at least $2 trillion. Um, when all is said and done with Iraq and Afghanistan, it's going to be about $6.5 trillion. I've also read One Figure in Business Insider, $7 trillion when all is said and done. Um, now, the, the best criticism I've heard, and it's a criticism I mostly agree with, is, uh, look, we had 88,000 interpreters, or not? excuse me, not interpreters. We had, when you include the interpreters and their families and like our top close allies working hand in hand with the U.S. government, when you include them and their families, there's about 88,000 of them. And we were only able to get out like 2,000. And there's a 14-step process for these people to get into the country. I'm sorry, but you should have cut the red tape and you should have streamlined it and you should have gotten more of them over here. So I think that criticism is totally legit that they were sort of blindsided and they were dragging their feet on that front. Now, Biden's response to that is, a lot of people are asking why we didn't evacuate sooner. Some of the people just didn't want to leave. And in fact, the government, this part I totally believe, that the Afghanistan government actually discouraged the U.S. for doing this mass exodus because then it it would have led to a crisis of confidence. And so they cared more about the optics. Hey, make sure everything looks cool. Make sure everything looks cool. And then, you know, it was too little too late, effectively, when it fell. That actually reminds me a little bit of COVID. You know how, like, the strategy for a while with COVID was, like, just be cool, be cool, nothing's happening, everything's fine, everything's cool, and then, you know, eventually the shit hits the fan, everybody's like, oh, why didn't we have a plan? The exact same thing here, where I'm sure it's true that there were whispers behind the scenes of, like, hey, we don't want to cause a crisis confidence, don't get out, like, 88,000 people right this second, that's crazy, Um, but now, in retrospect, it looks like, well, you probably should have gotten them out of there, so I think think both things are true. Um, I think that Biden's side of the story is correct from his perspective, and that's exactly how he sees it. I just don't think that that's uh, you know, the powerful argument in retrospect. I do think you could have gotten at least more than 2,000 of them out of there. You couldn't have got 15 or 20,000 of them out of there. Now, some people are saying, yeah, but we have had instances of like people who are nominally on our side who then ended up killing our soldiers. That's true, and we've covered those stories on this show. Um, but that is so rare. And so you want to bring them all in and vet them appropriately? I'm fine with that. But you should have done more to bring them in. So that is a criticism. That's, I think, the biggest failure here is that. Um, And then a lot of people are arguing he's pointing fingers at everybody else. I didn't hear any finger pointing there at all. In fact, he said, quote, the buck stops with me. That's the opposite of finger pointing. That is, I accept full responsibility for what's going on right now. So I don't know how anybody can say that. Everybody's like, oh, he's blaming Trump. Go ahead. Watch the whole speech. I dare you. There's one time he brings up Trump, and all he says, it's factual. He goes, I inherited a timeline from my predecessor to get out on May 1st. I had to decide whether or not to follow through with getting out or to basically recommit. Now, um, our agreement with the Taliban runs out, so there's gonna, violence is going to spike drastically, and we're going to be back to a hot war if I decided not to follow through if I decided to stay in there. And so he was saying, I inherited the timeline and I made this decision. I'm going to follow through with the overarching idea of getting out. That's that's not blaming Trump at all. That's just bringing up something factual. Uh, When people listen to this speech and take away that he's finger pointing, I can't help but think that these people are total idiots. I mean, they're just complete dupes to the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies and the deep state and the military industrial complex. Like, I don't, How can you watch that speech and come to that conclusion? It makes no sense. And then, listen, Biden makes the comparison to Vietnam. Biden says, because everybody's been doing that on TV, oh, my God, this is like the fall of Saigon when we were with our helicopter getting people out. Yeah, but the takeaway from the Vietnam situation and Saigon was like, God damn it, this whole thing was a disaster. We should have never went in in the first place. So why is everybody pretending like the takeaway now for Afghanistan is, oh my god, this withdrawal is so messed up, we should have either not done it or done it slower. By the way, you can't do it slower because the guns are hot <laughs> very soon. So if you were to stay there longer, then all of a sudden casualties skyrocket, including U.S. casualties. So you can't take longer. And so it's just amazing that everybody understands with Vietnam, that the real takeaway was, oh my god, this is crazy. We should have never gone there. But now, with Afghanistan, everybody's pretending like the lesson was the exact opposite. Now, he even says to the Taliban, listen, we're just securing the airport and getting our people out. And if there's any aggression against us, we're unleashing hell on you. I agree with that point, too. You've got to let them know we're still the United States of America. And if you come after us while we're evacuating, it's a Rapskis for you, son. And we'll stop at nothing. And it'll get ugly real quick. You've got to let him know just from a defensive perspective that that's what we're going to do. So I agree with him on that. Um, now, let me get to my – here's my overarching theory on this, and we're going to have more on this later as well. What the hell – why weren't um, the forces on the ground and why wasn't leadership more orderly and on schedule and, and ready – To get out why wasn't there a smoother drawdown well listen and i keep i can't take credit for this theory this is uh crystal told me this and it just rang true immediately whether it was with obama or with trump previously there were times where they were you know clearly had the instinct of like we got to get out and every single time they expressed that instinct what happened is the intelligence agencies or the pentagon or both you can call them the deep state they spoke to them and basically talked them out of it. And we're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, here's why we're not going to do that. Here's what you don't understand. Here's what you're missing. And listen, when you have somebody with a nice pressed uniform with all the badges on them and the flags, and you know they look, as Trump would say, straight out of central casting, and they're telling you, no, here's what you don't understand. Here's why you're wrong about this. I'm the expert. You sit down and listen to me. You can talk these presidents out of Convictions. You know, Trump clearly, because he said this a zillion times on Twitter before he was even president, about we've got to get out of Af- Afghanistan, it's just stupid, why are we there? And they didn't do it. So he, he, even with his withdrawal, he still kept 2,000 troops there. So, guys, you have to look at that, and what's Occam's razor? Occam's razor is somebody behind the stream, behind the scenes was pulling the strings and convinced them you're not going to do this. They absolutely thought the same thing when it came to Biden. That we're going to, same playbook that we used on Obama and that we used on Trump. Here's why you can't do that. Here's why we have to stay. And old Joe, give him credit, that curmudgeonly grandpa characteristic came out. And he was like, disagree. We're getting out. And listen, he stuck to his guns. And he put his middle fingers up. And he said, I don't care. I don't agree with you. We shouldn't be there. Let's get out. And so they thought they could convince them, and they couldn't convince them. And so then here we are immediately, uh, the, all of Afghanistan falls to the Taliban. And the reason why we weren't more prepared for it and didn't get out in a more orderly fashion and quicker is because to the last second they probably thought they could convince Joe to change his mind. And so that's why you see chaos on the ground. That's why you see we're in a mad dash to get out of there and we haven't evacuated nearly enough people. So in a sense, you could say U.S. intelligence and the Pentagon, military industrial complex sort of sabotaged Biden, where they really thought, no, 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 we're good, we're going to stay there. And so everything was sort of operating as per usual on the ground. But Biden stuck to his guns and said, get out. And so you didn't have the plans that should have been in effect in effect yet. So that that's – I think that they're – might be some truth to that. Now, granted, that's all speculation, but it really is the best explanation as to why we weren't more prepared. And then the other thing is, and again, more on this later, it's possible he was told one thing. And then when this happened, it's like they wanted to make him look like an idiot. Oh, sir, it's okay. You know, it's going to fall maybe in 90 days, uh, Afghanistan will fall. Like the intelligence he was being fed, now, now, by the way, they're coming out now, the CIA, and everybody's coming out and saying, no, 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 we warned him, we told him this would happen, he didn't listen. My guess is they may have thought this was going to happen, but they said to him, oh, sir, yeah, no, 90 days, maybe a year or something, but we do have time. And that made him look like an idiot when everything fell immediately, which further bolsters their case of like, well, see, I told you we shouldn't have gotten out. So, I mean, listen, I know it sounds crazy because Joe is the deepest – establishment politician of all time when you go to his voting record, but this is one area where he happens to be right, and now, holy hell, is raining down on him. So, I really think it's brave. The only thing that I would have done differently, like I said, is tried to get out those 88,000 sooner. But, again, if I'm in his position and I'm being fed the same intelligence he's being fed, maybe I also think, no, I have some time to do it, so maybe I wouldn't have done it yet. So, you never know, because you're not in the room. But, Ultimately, he made the correct decision. And the military-industrial complex is flipping out, which is why you see all of elite media is going nuts, whether it's the Democratic apologists or the Republican apologists. And the leadership of both parties are going nuts, and they're going after him viciously. And, by the way, the propaganda is so thick and so deep and so overwhelming that now his approval rating is dropping. I do think that in time, history will judge this the way it should be judged, which is like, of course, we should have gotten out of there. Um, but right now, because of the propaganda, it, his approval is plummeting, and it seems like he has no allies left, because he doesn't, because he actually is doing something brave here, and he's actually standing up to the entire military-industrial complex. So, listen, you've got to give credit where it's due. We can nitpick, but at the end of the day, guys, listen, at the end of the day, the process criticisms come down to what? We should have stayed longer. That's what the process criticisms are. And even that, I think, is totally incorrect. Some people are being honest and open and they're admitting, I want, I want to stay there forever. Okay, congratulations on taking your phenomenally unpopular position. Um, some people are being honest and admitting that, the real neocons and the real hardcore imperialists. And then others, like a lot of liberal interventionists, are making the argument of, we should have stayed longer. Go, yeah, okay, withdraw, but don't withdraw like this. But if this was going to happen whenever we left, if, if Kabul was going to fall, which it was going to, and Afghanistan was going to become Talibanistan no matter what, then you can make that argument at any point. If we got out in 2033, let's say, they would have been saying the same thing. Jake Tapper would be on TV saying, I'm fine with withdrawing, but not like this. So fundamentally, at the end of the day, you have soft imperialists and hard imperialists, and those are the people who are lined up against Biden on this front. And it makes me think, what Biden's doing here makes me think he actually bought the cover story. Namely, that like, oh, the reason we're there is to for freedom and democracy and women's rights, and to get back the terrorists who attacked us on 9-11, and that's it. He actually bought that cover story, I think, because maybe naively he never considered, well, military-industrial complex is making a phenomenal amount of money. Again, more on that later. Um, Trillions of dollars of mineral wealth in Afghanistan is there. Opium is there. In Iraq, oil. Um, And, of course, there's the geopolitics of it, where we're trying to keep China and Russia at bay. It looks like he bought the cover story, and he sees through the cover story, and he knows it's bullshit. So he's like, let's just get out. But as uh, Sean McCarthy says on Twitter, great follow. I highly recommend you guys follow him. He says, geez, Biden is really working overtime to make it two out of two Catholic presidents assassinated. Obviously a reference to JFK being the first Catholic president, and he was killed possibly by the CIA, if not likely by the CIA. Uh, And Sean McCarthy's like, Biden is trying to make it two for two so this is the best thing biden's done and there are criticisms i have but he's correct on the overarching point point. and um it's amazing how many people who even nominally thought of themselves as like i'm against the forever wars now they're flipping on biden and now all of a sudden they're not against the forever wars and we should have stayed just a little bit longer how many how much longer what would have changed so um he's right and more than happy to give credit where it's due. And as I joked around on Twitter and said, if he also gets us out of Iraq, I will offer him my services as White House press secretary. Okay, next. So the Taliban is currently in the midst of a PR charm offensive. This is really interesting. Let me show you a clip here from Sky News, then we'll break it down, and I'll give you some more information.
3: Does the Taliban promise to respect the will, the aspiration, uh, and the freedoms of the people inside Afghanistan, especially women?
4: Of course we have announced, as I said, uh, we uh, we are committed to uh, the women's uh, rights, uh, to education and also to work, uh, to freedom of speech. In the light of our uh, Islamic uh, rules, uh, it is very necessary to criticize uh, a person, an option, if there is a need, because uh, if, you, uh, if you do not uh, criticize an option, uh, how you can reform, how you can think about uh, uh, reform? So it is necessary we uh, believe in freedom of uh, speech, and also uh, the right of people uh, of education and work, and also that all people, all citizens should be equal in the sight of law, and there should not be any kind of discrimination.
1: Huh? He said he supports freedom of speech, women's rights, and there should be equality for all and no discrimination. What? Now, everybody pump your brakes a little bit. Uh, he they go on to say, in their more honest moments, we're in favor of full women's rights and freedoms within the context of Sharia law. Okay, well, tell me about your interpretation of Sharia law then, please. By the way, Sharia law is saying law law, so you can just say Sharia. Tell me about your interpretation of Sharia. And um, what are they really allowed to do? Because, of course, it's it's still very restrictive and they're very... Fundamentalist, and so what they're doing obviously is a, is a PR offensive, a charm offensive, and the idea is let's show the world that uh, we are a, a legitimate government, a modern government, and it's a message to the world like be cool, be cool, we're here to stay, and nobody mess with us. That's really what they're doing here. Um, now, other things that they did, they went to a Shia mosque for a ceremony. Wait, what? Now, of course, anybody who knows the details of this, that, that's unheard of. That's unheard of because, of course, you know, they're of the Sunni variety. They're a branch of Sunni Islam. And um, they're fundamentalists and they view Shias as um, apostates. And there's, you know, there is, there has been a religious Sunni-Shia uh, civil war in the Middle East in various areas. Now, of course, the, the conflicts are much more complicated than that and more goes into it than just sectarianism, but sectarianism is a large part of it as well. And so th- that's a first. I've never heard of that before. I've never seen that before. And it seems like nobody else has, that you have them you know, showing a sign of respect to the Shia community. The other thing they did is they announced, well, we're gonna do blanket amnesty for everybody who worked with the Americans and who was part of that uh, government. And, in fact, what they've done, so they sworn in the same police chief under Ghani, the previous president. They swore him in as the police chief now. Um, and some mayors they are saying, you guys uh, are, are cool. You're, you're going to stay in your same position, and we want civil services and society to run just as it was before. Um, now, again, everybody, you got to pump your brakes. This is largely a PR charm offensive, and it's not like they're all that different from the previous Taliban, although, to be fair, the previous Taliban was extra brutal, and so maybe they have modernized a little bit, but don't act like, you know, you can't take them at their word. Um, Actions speak much louder than words, and we're already getting reports of there were some people, there was a woman who didn't cover her head who was killed already. And, And listen, there's a reason why a lot of those people were trying to grab onto planes as they were taking off to get out of there, because they'd rather plummet to their death than live under Taliban rule. So... Obviously, the the real situation is a lot more complicated, and um, even if they've changed, they probably haven't changed that much, so you have to keep that in mind, but it is kind of crazy, isn't it, to see the Taliban even pretend to support these things? Because I have no doubt that there are some ISIS people out there and some Al-Qaeda people out there that are watching this going, fucking sellouts. I can't believe they're selling out like this, Uh, because, yeah, they're... A lot, the hardliner hardliners would be like, I don't even want you to do a PR charm offensive. You know, I want you to be honest with the world and up front with the world and tell them the truth and tell them that we don't want women to go to university. We don't want women to be in government, which, by the way, again, these are things that they've announced that they're going to have. So, um, but there is one other takeaway from this, which I think is important, which is that they are trying to show the world that you should work with us. Even though they're going to be brutal, even though they're going to be backwards, even though they're going to implement this primitive ideology, they're showing the world, like, you could still work with us. And truth be told, I mean, look, Saudi Arabia, top ally, they have a very strict interpretation of, of uh, Sharia that they implement there. And everybody knows that people are beheaded in the public square for witchcraft and sorcery and apostasy and drug smuggling. So it just it wouldn't make sense to say in that case it's okay, but in this case it's not okay. What's the difference? The difference is Saudi Arabia is our ally and they have oil, you know, and Taliban obviously is not our ally. And by the way, they're currently working closely with China and they're going to become part of the Belt and Road Initiative. But in response to this, um, the Biden administration froze I think it's 10 billion dollars of uh, assets that belong to the Afghan government. He froze those, and so that's difficult because a lot of that money is necessary to sort of keep the economy functioning and for the regular people of Afghanistan, and so you're also hurting them by doing something like that, not just the Taliban. And so I don't know if that's the the right approach, but obviously he's, you know, this is sort of revenge for them taking over the country. So it's going to be interesting to watch this unfold, but obviously the big takeaways are they're trying to have international legitimacy and they're trying to tell the world, don't mess with us. And they're also ju- just doing a PR offensive. So you don't take it at face value. I've already seen some people actually taking this at face value. And it's like, are you really that naive? What, well, you think the U.S. government is the only government that lies? You think a government that's run by the Taliban is going to be, like, open and honest about everything? It's just, it's, it's silly. Um, you could say, well, there's something to the fact that there's the effort to even do it, that they're even bothering to pretend. Okay. But still, don't take it all at face value. And I have seen some people taking it all at face value. Um, But there you have it. The Taliban is forming a government, and here's what they're saying publicly, although I'm sure the reports behind the scenes are certainly more harsh than the face they're putting on. Okay. Next. Donald Trump has the same problem as Hillary Clinton, which is he's been on every side of every issue. So is Hillary, and so is he, Um, even more so than other politicians, I think. So this is an area where he's overreaching to try to attack Biden, and in the process contradicting what used to be a fundamental cornerstone of his entire ideology. So look at his new statement on the issue of Afghanistan. He says, can anyone even imagine taking out our military before evacuating civilians and others who have been good to our country and who should be allowed to seek refuge. In addition, these people left top flight and highly sophisticated equipment. Who can believe such incompetence? Under my administration, all civilians and equipment would have been removed. So look at the first part of that. He says he wants to evacuate civilians and others who have been good to our country and who should be allowed to seek refuge. So there are, when you include the interpreters, their families, and people who worked really closely with the U.S. government, there's 88,000 of them. 88,000 Afghan civilians. Donald Trump wants to bring in 88,000 Afghan civilians, 88,000 Muslim refugees. That would literally be the polar opposite, the polar opposite of the Muslim ban that he wanted. And I think Afghanistan was on the list of the countries that were part of the attempted Muslim ban, which, of course, there were judicial challenges to it and whatnot. And so over time, it had to be changed and watered down. But this is a complete flip of what he used to say. Now, why would he argue this? He's arguing it because in the moment right now, it is the clearest argument against Biden. The clearest argument against Biden on the withdrawal is, hey, man, what about the 88,000 people who are close allies and our interpreters and their families who are going to be brutalized if not killed under Taliban rule? What about them? And he didn't get them out. And there wasn't an orderly process. And there was only 2,000 that have already been relocated and have already gone through the 14-step process to get into this country. So it is a very clear, reasonable argument as to how – the withdrawal was messed up, and it's the, pretty much the only criticism I share of how um, the withdrawal went poorly. I don't think any, any other thing was preventable. Everything else was like it was going to happen no matter what. So that's the biggest failure. So Trump is just making the clearest argument against Biden, not realizing or not caring that this contradicts part of his biggest argument on the campaign trail. The Muslim ban and being tough on immigration and... He just totally flips on it. Like that. Like that. Just like he flips. I mean, same thing on the entire Afghanistan thing. How many times did he say, we got to get out, we got to get out, we got to get out, we got to get out? He didn't get us out. Biden actually follows through on what Trump promised to do, and all of a sudden now Trump's hitting him on it. He's doing the thing you said you wanted to do. And now it's a problem? It's a problem because he's a nitpicker, and he doesn't actually believe anything. He believes in sheer political convenience. Whatever works for him in that moment, whatever argument is um, most persuasive at any given second is what he'll use. And it doesn't matter if it contradicts a policy belief he's held forever or a principle. Because he has no principles and he has no real policy beliefs. He believes in Donald Trump over all else. And so there you have it. I mean, it's just, it's so pathetic. And by the way, we're going to get to stories later. This is amazing. People on the right have been flip-flopping on the attack nonstop since the fall of Kabul, I mean, it really is amazing to see. I'm not sure I've ever seen anything like it, where they go from, oh, my God, what about the people who helped us? Joe Biden messed up so much by not getting them out. They flip from that to the fall of Afghanistan was intentional, and Biden's just trying to get more Muslim refugees in here to vote so Democrats can keep winning in elections. So they go from you've got to be soft on refugees, to so you've got to be tough on refugees like that, it's amazing. It just it shows they're such hacks, they don't believe in anything. I haven't heard a single thing from Rand Paul, who pretends to be anti-war all the time. Uh, I haven't heard a single thing from Matt Gates who pretends to be anti-war all the time. Where are you guys? You want to take a principled stand? Here you go. Stand up for the Democratic president who just actually pulled out of Afghanistan.
4: They
1: won't. Trump won't even do it, and he was the one who pretended to be the leader on that front. Trump was too much of a cuck to actually pull them all out, and now Biden did it. He's taken heat for it from everybody. And Trump joins in uh, on the parade of bashing Biden because he has political ambitions for 2024. Well, if you have political ambitions to be president again run in 2024, why should anybody vote for you if you don't even know what you believe? You're just a reactionary where it's like I'm against whatever they do. Now, what a dumb way to, to go through life. Just the opposite of them. That's how deep your thought is? It's just so pathetic, man. It's so pathetic. But listen, the substance of this one, yeah, that that's the one criticism I share of Biden on the withdrawal. But I also think he was probably told by the intelligence agencies that, you know, we're good for 90 days or a year or whatever until Kabul falls, so we have time to get him out. And then when they didn't get out, you know, then everybody blames him. Like, well, what if he was being told was contradictory and that we had some time? So, you know, I... It's easy for me to say in retrospect I would have done it, but I'm not in Biden's shoes and I didn't hear everything he heard, and maybe I would have done the same thing he did. But he's correct on the overall point, and this is just opportunistic garbage from Trump. Now he's randomly in favor of saving Muslim refugees. Absolutely ridiculous. Ask yourself this if you're still somehow at this late day a Trump fan. If he's going to flip on, what else wouldn't he flip on? Is there anything he wouldn't flip on? How do you know what he really believes about anything? You don't. You don't know what he believes about anything at all. All right, next. So this is really interesting. This is a story I've been chopping at the bit to talk about. Maduro of Venezuela came out and gave a speech, and uh, he talked about what's happening in Afghanistan, and he floated a little bit of an interesting theory about why everything unfolded the way it did. Everybody take a look, and then we'll discuss I'm going to read this to you guys, by the way, because for people listening live, it's in, obviously, a different language. Those images that we have seen, terrible. The United States withdraws from Afghanistan and leaves a country in civil war.
5: 20
1: years later, they had said that they had built an army of 300,000 soldiers.
5: Habían dicho que habían construido un ejército de 300 mil soldados con los mejores
1: armas del mundo.
5: Mentiras.
1: Six days ago, the president, sorry, U.S. intelligence said for the Taliban to take Kabul it would take 90 days.
5: Perdón, la inteligencia de Estados Unidos dijo que para que los talibanes tomaran Kabul iban a pasar 90 días. They are either very misinformed
1: about a country that they have intervened in, like Afghanistan, very misinformed, which speaks volumes about the decline of the U.S. Empire. Or someone within the United States intelligence apparatus is conspiring ...to misplace and harm Joe Biden. With the experience we have, I would say... ...someone in the United States intelligence apparatus gave recommendations to sink Joe Biden. Now, listen... No love for Maduro at all. This is not to defend his domestic record in Venezuela, of course. That's the qualifier I have to give in the context of this conversation. But is that possible? Yeah, that's definitely possible. What did he say? Uh, we were just told, oh, it'll take like 90 days for Kabul to fall. That's what we were just told. Um That's what was just reported in the media before the fall of Kabul. Oh, it's going to take like 90 days. That's what intelligence was saying. Now the CIA is out there, uh, you know, the Pentagon and the deep state are going to the media and telling them, we warned Joe Biden the fall was going to happen like now, and he didn't fucking listen to us because we're right. We're always right. He's wrong. Blame him. Blame him. Wait, you you just said 90 days. Now all of a sudden it falls. and You say, we told him we were right. We said don't get out because it's going to – gonna fall immediately. So his point is, how do we know that somebody in US intelligence wasn't like, oh, you wanna get out? Okay, cool. Let's see how well this goes. And so they tell Joe behind the scenes, Sir, it's gonna be we have two months before you know the fall happens. So then Joe thinks, okay I got two months to get out the eighty eight thousand people who are our interpreters, their families, people who worked with us very closely. That's how much time I have, so we're getting you know We're going to try to get everything ready and get the whole process done for a month or two. And then what happens? His point is maybe some people in U.S. intelligence knew that shit was going to fall like right now, but they told him 90 days so that he doesn't plan accordingly, and then the withdrawal looks horrendous, and they can tell the world, like, see, we should have never left. We should have stayed in there. It should have been an orderly withdrawal. What are we doing? Or not even an orderly withdrawal. We know these guys want to stay there. Forever. And that allows them to make that argument. And that allows them to look like the good guys. And that's what they're doing now. They're going on, you know, all the, they're, they're going to all the print outlets and the print outlets are stenographers to them. And you have the entire uh, elite media, MSNBC, CNN, Fox News, they're all attacking Biden and the leadership of both parties are attacking Biden. So his point is, hey, maybe, maybe Biden was sabotaged on purpose because he was sticking to his guns and wanting to get out of there possible. I think the more likely uh, scenario is, and again, I can't take credit for this theory. Crystal was the one who told me this, but I had a light bulb moment when she said it. It strikes me as definitely true. The intelligence agencies, um, they were able to convince Obama when Obama wanted to get out. They were able to convince them, that's dumb. That's wrong. Here's why you can't do that. We're going to stay in. Let me make the argument. And Obama was convinced by it. They were able to do the exact same thing to Trump, no matter what Trump pretends and postures in public. He said a million times publicly, even on Twitter, before he was president, we got to get out of Afghanistan. It's so stupid. Why are we there? And every single time it looked like he was going to do that, he didn't end up following through. And even his withdrawal left 2,000 troops there. So he didn't follow through, likely because the intelligence agencies convinced him you can't do it. So they got cocky, and they thought, we're definitely going to convince Biden that we should stay. And they weren't able to. And Biden put up his middle fingers and said, you're wrong. I want to get out. And so they didn't sufficiently plan as well as they should have because they really thought till the last minute we're going to change his mind. And so uh, you you don't necessarily need to go to nefarious plot and sabotaging on this front, but I do think that the people in the Pentagon and the intelligence agencies who are there from administration to administration who really run the show in many respects, I think they got cocky. And arrogant, and they thought we're just going to convince every president that we should stay there. And they thought they were going to convince Joe Biden, and they didn't. And so they didn't plan accordingly because they thought they'd be able to change his mind, and they couldn't. And so now, when Kabul falls, and we didn't evacuate everybody, Joe Biden's left looking like an idiot, even though Joe Biden was the one who was saying all along we should get out, and there should be the plan should be in place to get out. But the people who were supposed to put those plans into actions into action did not do it, and didn't want to do it, and thought till the last minute they could convince Biden. To do the opposite. So I think that's much more likely. That is an argument more from stubbornness and incompetence. Um, and I think that is a little more persuasive than the nefarious sabotaging on purpose. But having said that, that is possible. That's absolutely possible. So I'll leave it up to you. Ultimately, this is all speculative. I don't know. I'm not in the room. You don't know. You're not in the room. Maduro doesn't know. He's not in the room. But yeah, I mean, this is a guy who has, he does have experience in, you know, they've tried to coup him a zillion times, so he knows that the nefarious stuff oftentimes is true, so that's why he leans in that direction. But listen, you've got to say it about Biden. He really did put both middle fingers up to the military-industrial complex and the establishment and the elites in both parties on this, and he's getting no support over it. The only people who are out there very forthrightly saying Joe Biden is correct, me and Crystal and Sager. And, you know, I haven't seen what many others are saying, but certainly in mainstream media, nobody is defending Biden. In fact, they're bringing on John Bolton as like an expert on this stuff when he's a fucking war criminal who should be in The Hague. Yeah, bring on the people like Ari Fleischer. Bring on the people who lied us into Iraq in order to tell us their opinion on Afghanistan. I don't care what they're saying. I think they should be behind bars. These guys are liars and war criminals. But this is who they're going to as experts. Experts. So now the the conventional wisdom is either stay forever or get out in a different way, in a more orderly way. Uh, You can get out, just not like this. No matter when we left, Kabul was going to fall and Afghanistan was going to become Talibanistan. So if we wait another two years, all we're doing is wasting more U.S. money and wasting more U.S. lives and civilian lives. So why why would we do that? Like just stay another year or two so that then the Taliban can take it. Rip the Band-Aid off quickly. But there you have it. He might be right. He might be right. But I think it may be the case either that they're sabotaging Biden or or that uh, it was just incompetence and stubbornness and they thought they could change his mind. And to Biden's credit, they couldn't do it. Okay. All right, next. We are going to go to Charlie Kirk. Here we go. This is a good one. So Charlie Kirk uh, discussed Biden's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Now, Charlie's one of these people who says he's anti-war and said he agreed with Trump on withdrawing from Afghanistan. Now, all of a sudden, he's not... uh, doesn't seem to be so much in favor of getting out. So let's see what he has to say. Take a look.
3: President Joe Biden's Department of Defense will accept 30,000 Afghan refugees in the military installations following the collapse of Kabul. Boom. Political transformation. Let the country crumble. Do you know there's 5 million displaced people in Afghanistan now? This was all intentional. Joe Biden let it fall apart to now say, oh, I'm so sorry. I guarantee you Joe Biden's speech this afternoon will talk about refugee assistance and relocation support. Now, Joe Biden's going to be scrambling and make good on it, and the liberal media will love it. They'll say, oh, yes, okay, now I get it. Joe Biden is now fixing his own problem. Joe Biden is stepping up, and he's allowing a flow of people from the Middle East into America. Thank you, Joe Biden. You're such a hero. You're so benevolent. You're so respectful. You're so compassionate. Do you see what's going on here? What's going on here is Joe Biden wants a couple hundred thousand more Elon Omars to come into America to change the body politic permanently. We're playing checkers, and they're playing chess.
1: That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. By the way, you know who made the argument that we should be accepting these refugees right now? Donald Trump. He released a statement saying, this is so incompetent. How could you withdraw without getting out the people who've been very good to America? They're allowed, and they should be able to seek refuge. Trump said that. By the way, he says Biden's going to let in 30,000 of them. There's 88,000 of them. He's letting in 30,000 of them. That's conservative. That's a conservative number. Trump was saying nominally, hey, all the people who've been good to America should be able to come here. That's 88,000. God, oh God, this is so, like, he obviously has a narrative. He's trying to create, you know, a, an argument on this. But it's so utterly made up. He says, quote, this was all intentional. This was all intentional? You think this is going how Biden wanted it to go? You think it's going how Biden wanted it to go? His approval rating is dropping. And by the way, Charlie is wrong about everything he said there. He goes, oh, Biden's speech will be about refugees and the media will love it. Biden didn't even mention refugees in his speech, and the media didn't love it. The only person defending him over the speech is me, because he made the case to get out of Afghanistan. We should have gotten out of Afghanistan. He said, I accept responsibility. And he said, listen, the, what do you want me to tell you? The Afghan government ran away, and a lot of the 300,000 people we armed didn't want to fight. So He gave facts, and everybody's like, oh, he's finger-pointing and blaming other people. And Jesus Christ, this is terrible. What a, what a mistake. What a debacle. So he didn't speak about refugees in the speech, and the media didn't love it. You're wrong about all that stuff. And if you think this is intentional, then what you're saying is Biden wanted his approval rating to drop below 50% for the first time. What a monumental moron. I mean, all, everything he said there was false. You think 30,000 refugees is going to, quote, change the body politics? How? How? How's that? What are you talking about? How? Even if they all move to, like, Wyoming, even then, it probably wouldn't change the body politic. They all got, they went to Wyoming, and then, oh, they could, we could get a Democratic senator from Wyoming. Even that probably wouldn't happen. 30000 is not going to be a game changer. What are you talking about? Imagine thinking this is how Biden wanted it to go. <laughs> so, but listen, final point, and this is the most important point. I'm going to keep stressing this. Charlie Kirk used to say, I agree with Trump. We should get out of Afghanistan. What are we doing? wasting trillions of dollars there and, you know, um, it's only enriching the military-industrial complex and let's do America first. So Biden actually does America first, and he's like, not like that, not like that. He wants to lend 30,000 Ilhan Omars. Trump wants to lend 88,000 of them. So on that point, who would be further left? Charlie, does Trump want to remake the body politic to help Democrats? No, of course not. Uh, I mean, it's so, like, the fact that you even have to respond to this is ridiculous. The, by the way, he thinks this is, like, edgy and subversive. No, honestly, what's edgy and subversive is being president of the United States and putting your middle finger up to Raytheon, Boeing, Halliburton, KBR, um, Honeywell, all of the defense contractors who've gotten phenomenally wealthy off of this, putting your middle finger up to the NSA and the CIA and the FBI, putting your middle finger up to leadership of your party, to leadership of the other party, even the people who are supposed to be allies like Rand Paul and Matt Gates on Afghanistan, nowhere to be found. I've seen like one or two Democratic Congress people express tepid agreement with Joe Biden. Everybody else is shitting on him. This takes courage. This takes courage. So many elites made so much money off of this war, and Biden's like, the gravy train is stopping, we're getting out. That takes courage. That's subversive. That's edgy. I'm astounded that Joe Biden followed through with it. I really am. I really am, especially because we know there's trillions of dollars of mineral wealth in Afghanistan, and that has something to do with it. The opium, that has something to do with it. In Iraq, it's, it's oil. Keeping China and Russia at bay, this all has something to do with it. The profits of the so-called defense contractors, that has something to do with it. And he's like, I don't care. I don't agree. I don't think we should be there. We're getting out. That's edgy. That's subversive. That's courageous. That's brave. Would I have done some things differently? Yes. It's easy for me to say it now, though, because I wasn't in Biden's shoes. I didn't have the intelligence he had. Maybe he was lied to, or maybe he was misled. But I would have tried to get out those 88,000 people, and I would have tried to do it sooner. He didn't. He didn't get them out. That's the one fair criticism of him. But Charlie Kirk is acting like... Biden did already get out 30000 He got out 2000 So he's criticizing him for something he didn't even do yet. See, that's what I'm saying. There is no – they're all going to attack him no matter what. They're all going to attack him no matter what. On the broader point, he's correct. He got it right. And almost nobody is saying that. And it's pathetic. It's pathetic. Everybody who said they were anti-war, and now when Biden actually ends one, they're not defending him. They're not really anti-war. They're just political hacks, and they're posturing, and that's clear. Okay. All right, let me take a break. When we come back, Sean Hannity, he weighed in on Afghanistan and was terrible. And then we're also going to get to the Cuomo brothers. Chris, Chris Cuomo is back being a complete moron. Stay right there. y'all, welcome back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Let's continue, talk a little bit about Sean Hannity here. One of the things uh, I've talked about for a long time on this show is that Corporate media is packed full of, number one, folks who aren't that bright. I'm trying to phrase it in a, in a kind way. Um, there's a system, there's a filtration system, and usually you only get promoted um, if they know you're not going to rock the boat too much, if they know you're going to repeat the narratives that they want you to repeat. And so that's how you end up with people like Wolf Blitzer uh, in high positions, and he's on for roughly 48 hours a day. Um, so that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is these is they're really unscrupulous and vapid, and, you know, they have no qualms about the way the system works, how it's funded. On a lot of the Sunday shows, you literally see commercials for, like, defense contractors, and then they cut back from the break, and then they have conversations about foreign policy. We're shock, shock Everybody's pro-war. Um, And this dynamic exists across all of the big media outlets. Well, here we have an example that's, like, extra egregious because it just shows you that this stuff doesn't matter to them. So Sean Hannity, and this is on his radio show, not even on his, uh, his TV show. On his radio show, he was talking about Afghanistan, and towards the end of his segment, he said this.
3: All right, 800-941-SHAWN is our number. You want to be a part of the program. Listen, there is a stampede, not only out of Afghanistan, but a stampede away from high prices, overpriced service from the big carriers like Verizon, AT&T, T-Mobile, the average family making the switch to Pure Talk. Now, they offer the exact same coverage using the exact same cell towers, and the average family is saving nearly $1,000 a year
1: for the exact same service. Imagine how big of a corporate tool you have to be to do that. Seriously, think about it. Imagine how little you care, how little you care about what's going on in Afghanistan to casually, nonchalantly, flippantly do an ad like that. I'm telling you, he doesn't care about this stuff. He doesn't care. He's a robot that spews right-wing talking points. That's it. That's it. And, you know, who was it that told me the story? Somebody told me the story that, like, off-air, Hannity's actually the nicest of everybody and um, of all the people in corporate media. But he also is the one who's the most acting. So he, like, doesn't really mean anything he says. But look at this. He's a, he's a human billboard. You know, he's just a puppet for whatever corporate interests want to push. How could you bring yourself to do that? Guys, doing ads alone I think is kind of gross unless you really, really believe in the, in the product. But imagine doing an ad and weaving in the awkward transition about what's happening in Afghanistan. By the way, this isn't the only one he did. He did it again. So for Media Matters, uh, Brendan Carrots said the following, Sean Hannity plugs my pillow to Americans with families stuck in Kabul. So Sean said on his radio show, how would you like to be in Kabul today as an American, and you can't get to the airport? Where are you thinking your life is headed? If you're one of those family members, I bet you're not sleeping. I don't even think my pillow can do it. My, MyPillow.com, that's where I go. I fall asleep faster. I stay asleep longer. These are going to be a lot of sleepless nights for so many of our fellow Americans. We've got to get them home. How do you even respond to this for anybody who actually likes fox news and takes them seriously and watches them or enjoys sean hannity the three of them in total that'll watch this video really you don't see how scummy this is how gross this is how vapid this is how little he cares about what's actually happening in the world you know what guilty i care i'm actually interested in what's happening in the world and i want to try in whatever tiny way a youtube show has the ability to do it, but I want to try to make the world a little bit better, and tell you guys how I see things, and, you know, describe how I think we can improve, and, like, I actually care about this shit. Sean Hannity doesn't give a fuck, son, very clearly. He's just a corporate tool. He's a human billboard, and like I said, reading ads alone is sort of gross enough, but doing it in this way, it's just, it hits a level of shamelessness that I didn't know was possible. Seriously, I have to say, one of the things I'm super proud of is that, to this day, I've I've been doing this full-time since, like, late 2012. To this day, I have never had a conversation with an advertiser. Not once. Not once. Obviously, the only thing that happened is where the big seltzer meme comes from, where um, I was coughing on air one time, and I chugged, seltzer next to me and i said i promise this isn't an ad and i joked around and said but it might as well be try vintage seltzer and then uh what happened was somebody who watched the show i wish i could give credit to this person i don't remember who did it but somebody who uh watched the show tweeted that clip at vintage seltzer and vintage was like that's awesome we're gonna send this guy some free seltzer and so then they sent me some free seltzer by the way it genuinely was phenomenal like, there were discontinued flavors, like pineapple-flavored seltzer, strawberry-flavored seltzer. Oh, it was good. I was upset that it was discontinued, seriously. But uh, – so that's the only sort of interaction I've had, and it was obviously all started from a joke, and it became a meme. And, but I've never had a conversation with – an advert- to this day, I've never had a conversation with an advertiser, and I pride myself on that. Um, and when you have a show that's the size that this show is, when you have a show that's the size that Crystal Kyle and Friends is um, – a lot of advertisers would give a lot of money for me to push their stuff or read an ad or even just run an ad. Uh, obviously, we're part of the, the YouTube program, so what that means is there's a buffer between myself and Google and YouTube, and they have their own ad stuff where they talk to them and then they run them on the channel. But, again, I've never there's a big buffer there, so I've never had a conversation with anybody, uh, any advertiser, and I really do take pride in that. And with Crystal Kyle and friends, we even went above and beyond. This is the polar opposite of Sean Hannity. What we do for Crystal Kyle and friends, is we even turn off the YouTube ads. So we don't even run those. And if you do happen to every now and then see an ad, it's because Google basically forces us to have it. And so they take their cut. So they'll run ads just for themselves. But we see none of that. Every time we upload a KKF video, we click uh, demonetize on purpose we turn off the monetization, and so that's why with that way, we told you guys, we want to build something different, we want to build something more pure, we want to have nothing to do with any advertisers whatsoever, and that's why you guys, uh, you know, pay the $5 a month to get the video version, when, you know, that's basically tipping us, because all of you can get the audio version for free, we still have it for free for everybody, the extra little thing you get is the video in a day early, if you pay the $5, but like, point I'm trying to make is, these things matter, these things matter. And like, there's a way to do it that is more ethical and more just and more thoughtful and more honest with the audience. And then there's Sean Hannity and what he's doing here. And this is a level of scummy advertising that I don't know if I've ever seen it this bad. I mean, there's a lot of stuff advertising-wise that I sort of wince at and I don't like. and But this is like as bad as it gets. Casually talking about the tragedy in Afghanistan and just linking it to some shitty product that you're trying to hawk. It's just he's totally soulless. He doesn't care. He's, you know, he's all about the money and being an actor and, and, and playing a role. And um, at this point, I think anybody can see through it. And, I mean, if you watch this segment and you still think, like, oh, it's cool what he's doing, there's no getting through to you. So it is what it is. All right, next. So there was one clear winner, one clear winner um, of the Afghanistan war, and that is the military industrial complex. So look at this from the intercept. $10,000 invested in defense stocks when Afghanistan war began, now worth almost $100,000. Was the Afghanistan war a failure? Not for the top five defense contractors and their shareholders. That's from John Schwartz. Um, Really good piece. Highly recommend you guys check it out. By the way, that's 58% better than uh, the way the rest of the stock market performed. 58% better. Defense stocks during the Afghanistan war. Lockheed Martin, 1,236% return. Northrop Grumman, 1,196% return. Boeing, 975% return. General Dynamics, 625% return. Raytheon, 331% return. The military industrial complex got exactly what it wanted out of this war. Now, I told you guys. The cover story is, oh, you know, we got to get Osama bin Laden. We got to get Al Qaeda. That's at least partly true that that was one of the reasons why we did what we did. But then the other cover story was bullshit. Freedom, democracy, human rights, women's rights, we don't care about those at all. Look at our top allies, Saudi Arabia. How do they treat women? I mean, give me a break. That's, they're not democratic, they don't have freedoms, and they don't have women's rights. So that, that's just a cover story. It's not true. What are the real reasons why we're there? You guys know it. You've heard me say it a million times. The imperialism chessboard is a big part of it. Got to keep China and Russia at bay as the rising powers, and so we control what we view as a vital region of the world. Um, and, of course, you have natural resources, trillions of dollars of mineral wealth and opium, and in Iraq, it's oil. And so that stuff factors in as well. But, yes, the profits of the defense contractors, the military-industrial complex, guys, that absolutely factors in. And I think you're naive if you think it doesn't. So I want to go ahead and show you guys where we got the phrase military-industrial complex from, where we got that term from. It's from a Republican president, Dwight Eisenhower, who knew all of this was coming based on the incentives that he encountered firsthand. Watch.
6: I come to you with a message of
0: leave-taking and farewell. This speech did not get very much attention. When a new president was coming to power as John Kennedy was, the spotlight was not on Dwight Eisenhower. We have been
6: compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportion.
0: There was a feeling at the time that this must have been written by some speechwriter who just sneaked into the speech.
6: In the councils of government, we must car- guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex.
4: Three months ago, uh, we got contacted by a family up in Minnesota saying that we had documents from Malcolm Moose. He was responsible... in in part for drafting the military-industrial conference speech. These new papers give us written evidence that this
0: was not just some caprice of Eisenhower's or something by some speechwriter. You see the evolution
4: of his speech from from May 1959 to uh, 1961. And he wanted to give this speech for a long time, two years.
6: Our military organization today bears little relation to that known of any of my predecessors in peacetime or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea.
0: There was one person in Dwight Eisenhower's life whom he really confided
4: almost everything to, and that was his brother Milton. There's one particular document where the speechwriters had only drafted their version of his speech, only to see uh, Milton come along and totally revamped had already been, been written. When Milton Eisenhower was uh,
0: taking notes and writing things on the drafts of these speeches, the speechwriters knew that it
6: wasn't Milton talking, it was Ike. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. He would see magazines with
0: advertisements for some you know, new war plane or some bomb, and he got so angry he'd take the magazine and throw it into the fireplace of the Oval Office because he felt that Defense spending should not be something that would be encouraged by companies who are seeking
4: commercial gain.
0: We must
6: never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes.
4: There is an interesting document. It shows that the farewell speech would be made to Congress, but yet President Eisenhower decided no, he was going to address the people.
6: Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together.
0: One test of how well a president speaks is how long the speech lives. Here we are 50 years later, we're still talking about this speech.
6: Now, on Friday noon, I am to become a private citizen. I am proud to do so. I look forward to it thank you
1: it became a business how do so-called defense contractors make their money how do they make their money they make their money by selling their tanks and their weapons and their fighter jets and things of that nature who are they going to sell to they're gonna sell to the US government first and foremost but also our allies Now, do they care that a lot of the people we sell to have horrendous human rights records like Israel, Saudi Arabia? They don't care. They don't care if it's a theocracy. They don't care if it's authoritarian. They don't care about women's rights or democracy. They don't care about any of that. They want to make money. So they're going to sell the weapons to them, and they're going to sell the weapons to our government. Now, the extra cherry on top, which makes this as disastrous as he's describing, is that we've basically legalized bribery and corruption in this country. So... All you need is for Raytheon and Boeing and all the other defense contractors to give money to the politicians when they run their campaigns. And then when the politicians get in power, they will give these companies contracts. Even if we don't need uh, you know, the weapons at this point in time, they'll continue to give them money and give them contracts. And so you have this terrible incentive where – the politicians are always going to give the defense contractors more money to create more weapons, to create more jobs in the various states, and the contractors are always going to give the politicians money for their campaigns, and it's a vicious cycle. And so this is how you get to the point where we've armed to the teeth every authoritarian theocrat in the world, and we're acting as an empire, and it's very, very profitable. It's how we've gotten to that point. Dwight Eisenhower warned about this and said, Be careful because these commercial interests are going to butt up against what's supposed to be. If the whole idea is we're supposed to only do foreign policy for defensive purposes, or even let's go a step beyond that, forget just defensive purposes, because Dwight Eisenhower probably wouldn't even agree with, let's just be defensive, he'd probably say, and to do like peacekeeping, you know, to stop a genocide, like look at what happened with the Nazis, we had to fight back, of course, you can argue that's defensive and it's peacekeeping. Even if you believe in that, sort of like a genuine benevolent empire approach, even for somebody like that, he's concerned about the military-industrial complex because he sees what could happen, that we don't care about peacekeeping, we don't care about defense, we care, they care about making more money, and that's going to lead, it's a race to the bottom, that's going to lead for us to arm more terrible governments and do more terrible interventions in war, because elites are getting wealthy off of it, he was right, and we have the numbers to prove it, so... Whenever anybody says, well, the war in Afghanistan didn't work, it's like, well, what exactly do you mean? Because for certain sectors, they think it worked phenomenally well, because the whole point for them was the grift. Okay. Let's go to Chris Cuomo. Here we go. So Chris Cuomo is back from his vacation, and uh, he weighed in on what happened with his brother Andrew resigning as governor of New York, Um, and of course the AG report that came out, which hundreds of pages of allegations of sexual harassment that's been vetted and found credible. Let's see what Chris had to say.
2: Before we wrap up tonight, there's one more thing I do want to say about me, my brother, my family, and you, first, thank you. Thank you for reaching out. I appreciate the concern and the support, I really do. My brother, as you know, resigned as governor of New York and will be stepping down next week. There are a lot of people feeling a lot of hurt and a lot of pain right now, and my hope is that ultimately everyone involved can get to a better place, that some higher good will be served in all of this. As for me, I've told you it's never easy being in this business and coming from a political family, especially now. The situation is unlike anything I could have imagined. And yet I know what matters at work and at home. Everyone knows you support your family. I know and appreciate that you get that. But you should also know I never covered my brother's troubles because I obviously have a conflict, and there are rules at CNN about that. I said last year that his appearances on this show would be short-lived, and they were. The last was over a year ago, long before any kind of scandal. I also said back then that a day would come when he would have to be held to account, and I can't do that. I said point blank, I can't be objective when it comes to my family. So I never reported on the scandal. And when it happened, I tried to be there for my brother. I'm not an advisor. I'm a brother. I wasn't in control of anything. I was there to listen and offer my take. And my advice to my brother was simple and consistent, own what you did, tell people what you'll do to be better, be contrite. and. Finally, accept that it doesn't matter what you intended. What matters is how your actions and words were perceived. And yes, while it was something I never imagined ever having to do, I did urge my brother to resign when the time came. There are stories and critics saying all kinds of things about me, many unsupported. But know this, my position has never changed. I never misled anyone about the information I was delivering or not delivering on this program. I never attacked nor encouraged anyone to attack any woman who came forward. I never made calls to the press about my brother's situation. I never influenced or attempted to control CNN's coverage of my family. And as you know, back in May, when I was told to no longer communicate with my brother's aides in any group meetings, I acknowledged it was a mistake I apologized to my colleagues, and I stopped, and I meant it. It was a unique situation being a brother to a politician in a scandal and being part of the media. I tried to do the right thing, and I just want you all to know that. As I've said, we have rules here at CNN that prevent me from reporting on my brother. They remain in place and will continue to. Tonight, I simply wanted to address something that, given what's happened, I just felt it needed to be said. This will be my final word on it, and I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to do so. Let's take
3: a break. We'll be right back.
1: Not owning any of it, not taking any responsibility. For those of you who don't know the details of the story, he, uh, he was advising his brother behind the scenes about uh, what to do moving forward. Obviously, he had his brother on. He said, oh, the appearances will be short-lived. His brother was on a very long time. I don't know how many appearances he did, but it was a lot because I remember covering them as he was doing them. And uh, so they were giving him fawning praise and positive coverage nonstop uh, when the national mood was in his favor and when they viewed him as like the antidote to Trump and the guy who's serious on COVID. And then as soon as we started getting information that exposed how terrible of a job he did, all of a sudden, Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo's off CNN, and there is no reporting from Chris Cuomo, who is just pumping him up. There's no, uh, even just bare, basic retelling of the facts of what's going on. So, I mean, look, let's go through some of this. When he starts, he says, uh, thank you for reaching out. I appreciate the concern and the support. See what he's doing? He's poisoning the well up front, trying to frame it as like, well, obviously, everybody's already with me, and I want to thank you for reaching out, as if you're the victim of some You're not the victim of anything. You're not even close to the victim of everything. You and and Andrew is the perpetrator and you're the accomplice. Absolutely. Uh, He says, I never reported on this scandal. And when it happened, I tried to be there for my brother. Um, He said, I said to Andrew, own what you did. Tell people you'll be better. And eventually he says, resign. By the way, I don't even, I don't, I'm not even sure that's true. I think that Chris Cuomo is trying to salvage what remains of his, uh, you know, positive uh, view in polite society. He's got a reputation he's trying to uphold, so he's trying to maintain that. And the way he's maintaining that is basically to throw Andrew under the bus and say, I was telling him to resign every step of the way. It's not me. It's not my fault. I didn't do anything wrong. Um, And then he says, this is the part that really got under my skin. I never misled anyone about the information I was delivering or not delivering. Yes, you were. Every step of the way you were, there was a massive conflict of interest. You shouldn't have been in that seat. You shouldn't have been in that position. You're the brother of one of the most powerful politicians in the country. And you were playing patty cakes with him on a daily basis on your show, talking about how he's the best governor in the world and joking around, giving him that big, uh, you know, cotton swab and talking about your Sunday dinners with the family and joking around and ha, 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 ha. That's not okay in what's supposed to be a news network. That's not okay. And then again, if you're going to do that, if you were going to do the propaganda for him and have him on all the time when everybody was feeling positive about him, then – it was your obligation, it was your responsibility to also report on the negative stuff. Because you see how the game is rigged? You can do the positive stuff, but then the second it gets negative is, oh, we don't, we don't talk about that because I have a conflict of interest. Well, if you have the conflict of interest, it also applies to the positive stuff. That's a giant conflict of interest. That is obvious to anybody and everybody. This is like the whole point of ethics in journalism. You have rank bias and you have a conflict of interest. You shouldn't have said, oh, a word about him at all any step of the way or if you were going to say anything it had to be the positive and then the negative too you can't just hide the negative negative. and by the way there's a lot of negative obviously the nursing home order that everybody talks about uh you know when you, covid positive patients were sent back into nursing homes and that led to god knows how many hundreds or thousands of deaths they hid the numbers and lowered the numbers for deaths in new york from covid overall he wrote a book and got five million dollars about how we defeated covid when he didn't defeat covid at all new york was hit the hardest in the nation at one point. Um, his, his right-hand man and campaign manager from 2014, Joseph Percoco, was found guilty, $320,000 uh, in bribery. You know, that he created the Moreland Commission to investigate corruption. Then they started in- investigating him and his allies, and he ended the commission. The list goes on and on. The, they changed the name of the Tappan Zee Bridge in New York to the to Mario Cuomo Bridge, which, which is his dad's name because dad was governor. And then they had a scandal about they didn't use the right bolts for the bridge, and then they covered that up. It was a giant infrastructure failure and a giant scandal, and they covered that up as well. The list goes on and on. Never mind uh, all the obvious things in the report about the sexual harassment, and it wasn't just being old-fashioned and and affectionate. He was uh, reaching under blouses and grabbing titties and grabbing asses and telling women who worked under him, I sure would like to be touched right now. I mean, come on, man. So you can't just talk about the positive, and then when the negative comes, say, oh, I don't talk about my brother or with my brother. You did when it was positive. No accountability. And you're just trying to bury it and sweep it under the rug. How dumb do you think we are? And shame on CNN for keeping him on air. What more does the guy have to do to get axed? What more does the guy have to do? Well, the fact of the matter is this. It's very simple. Let me explain to you why Chris Cuomo is still on air. Whoever's at the top of CNN likes him personally. That's the only reason he's still on air. That's it. Whoever management is, whoever the top rats are, they like him personally, and he's probably a good office presence, and people like having him around. So are like, we're just going to defend him. It's that simple. I think that's what it is. But the fact that he's not taking any responsibility or accountability, and he's not, he still doesn't understand what he did wrong, it's beyond pathetic. And it exposes CNN for what it really is. It's a propaganda outlet for the corporate Democrats. That's what it is. Okay, next. So here we have a story that uh, is a little bit surprising, if you ask me, because it really does show some pretty sad bias. New York Post says, Twitter says Taliban can stay on platform if they obey rules. So the Taliban's allowed on. Both official, both official Taliban spokesmen have unverified accounts on Twitter. One has more than 310,000 followers. Uh, his most recent tweet, as of Tuesday afternoon, promoted a press conference by Taliban leaders and drew hundreds of, thousands, hundreds of responses, Excuse me, many of them from well-wishers. Quote, dear, let's try to pronounce this name, Zabahula Mujahid Saib, first of all, I welcome you and then congratulate you on the complete liberation of Afghanistan. Read a typical message. The other spokesman, Kari Yusuf Ahmadi, has more than 63,000 followers and gained notoriety during the recent fighting for tweeting reports about the capture of various cities as the Taliban swept through the Afghan countryside. Big tech critics have expressed outrage over Twitter's tolerance toward the Taliban after it banned Trump in the aftermath of the deadly January 6 riot at the U.S. Capitol. The company also recently suspended Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene after she questioned the efficacy of COVID-19 vaccines, but has permitted accounts affiliated with repressive governments like China and Iran to spread anti-American and anti-Israel propaganda. Okay, that last part, um, obviously that's their spin on it, that it's anti-American and anti-Israel propaganda. But so let's discuss this, because this is really interesting and important. The argument made against Trump as to why he was banned is like, hey, Look at the things that you were saying that facilitated and defended uh, the January 6th storming of the Capitol and the riot. And, you know, I we talked about it at the time, in real time, it was very clear to me Trump was talking out of both sides of his mouth. He gave a speech before they stormed the Capitol and basically said, go to the Capitol. And he's very clearly egging them on and talking about we can't let them get away with this. We can't let them steal the election. Um, and then... When shit got real and they had stormed the Capitol, he was forced to go out and basically uh, give an address, give a little speech, and I think he released a Twitter video saying effectively, you're very special people, I know how you feel, this is unfair, this shouldn't have happened, this is unjust, somebody should do something about it, but I want all you to go home in peace because uh, this has gone too far and uh, the time has now come to go home. So he was talking out of both sides of his mouth trying to cover his bases. Well, Twitter had had enough and they banned him. Um, there were also a number of times previously where he seemingly violated Twitter's Uh, terms of service, but he got away with it, like directly threatening to bomb North Korea, among other things. So, but the argument for the actual ban was related to the January 6th event. Um, And I'm not sure, actually, to be clear, I'm not sure if that was Facebook's justification or Twitter's, or I'm sort of getting the different social media companies mixed up in my mind right now. Correct me if I'm wrong on that, but I think the banning of Trump from Twitter was related to January 6th. So the idea was, facilitated a coup attempt, got to go. Okay. Um, well, the Taliban actually did a coup successfully. Now don't get it twisted. I don't, the government before the American puppet government was a total farce. It was a house of cards. It was ridiculous, but it was the acting government of Afghanistan. This isn't a defense of that government, but it is also just an objective descriptor to say that that is the government that was the government. And so the Taliban overthrew that government. They took city after city, uh, and the reports were coming in, you know, day after day. We learned, oh, they took Jalalabad, oh, they took Kandahar, oh, they took Kabul, finally. So they did a coup, and they were tweeting it in real time. And Twitter says, well, as long as they don't violate our policies, we're going to allow the Taliban to stay on. But hold on. The argument against Trump was, you were pushing for a coup, so you've got to go. The Taliban actually did a coup and live-tweeted it, and they don't have to go? Guys- That doesn't make any sense. I despise Donald Trump. Everybody knows that. I'm one of his biggest enemies and argue against him all the time on this show. He was a disaster and his his presidency was horrendous and the list goes on and on. I criticize him all day, every day. Everybody knows that. But that makes no sense from Twitter. Now, let me be clear. Is my argument, well, ban the Taliban? No. And a lot of right-wingers, they they lose the plot because that is what they end up arguing. Got to ban him. No, actually. I would say you should keep Trump up. You should keep the Taliban up. And I want to see what all these people are saying and what all these people are doing. And the only time anybody should be pulled down is, you know, a very clear, direct threat of violence or doxing. Outside of that, I'm very hands off and let people say what they're going to say and do what they're going to do. And when it's the president of the United States, it inherently has value to see what he's saying and doing. You could ban it from Twitter or Facebook, but he could just release a – when he, when he was president, he could just release something officially through the White House, and then all the media outlets have to cover it. So to, protect, to kick him off platforms makes no sense. By the same token, now the Taliban is running Afghanistan. They're the government there. So should you kick him off? No, I don't think you should. But that's the point, is Trump really shouldn't be kicked off, even though it you know, makes us feel better and it's more comfortable and you don't you know, worry about, oh, my God, is he going to tweet us into a war? What's he going to say? What are you going to do? Um, it's more comfortable with him off, but that doesn't matter. He should be on. I think the Taliban should be on. And they need to have, you know, more objective standards and more reasonable standards that I think are more in alignment with the way we act in the United States with the First Amendment. Um, To ban Marjorie Taylor Greene over COVID misinformation, but you don't ban a Taliban operative when they're live tweeting a coup, do you not understand how silly that is? Now, that's not a defense of what Marjorie Taylor Greene said. Marjorie Taylor Greene was wrong with everything she said on COVID. She's a COVID denialist. She's an anti-vaxxer. She's wrong about all of that stuff. But the only way you defeat that misinformation is to engage with it. You can't just ban it, especially because that's not nearly as egregious as violently taking over cities, obviously. So there is no – their standards don't make any sense. They make no sense at all. Like, what are you going to do? Former dictators or people who committed war crimes, that's way worse than, you know, than spreading COVID misinformation, in my opinion, or people who committed triple homicides and are now on Twitter. They're allowed to do that and then say, like, I get the argument of like, oh, it should be whatever happened on the platform is the thing that matters. But it's also the case that a lot of social media outlets have banned people when there wasn't anything that happened on that platform. That happened with Trump and one of the platforms. None of this, nothing he said on a particular platform was the problem, but he was kicked off. It just it doesn't make any sense. And really what it feels like is the social media companies bending to popular pressure among elites in the U.S. That's what it feels like. And that's unacceptable. That's unacceptable. Take a more hands-off approach. Be more in favor of free speech, as much in favor of free speech as humanly possible. Because if you don't do that, you end up looking beyond ridiculous. You end up looking like this. If Iran can be on there... Uh, and I think they should be, if China can be on there, and I think they should be, um, the Taliban can, and Trump can, and there's inherent value in knowing what the leaders and former leaders of are saying and doing. Duh. So I just – this should be something that gets them to think more seriously about their policies, but it won't. They'll just double down, or they'll find a, a reason to ban the Taliban people, and then it's like, okay – congratulations, you now are banning the head of the Afghanistan government and the former head of the U.S. government. Wow, what a win. No, let them all talk. Let them all talk. Again, if they're doxing or directly threatening, then you can and should take action. But even then, as I've told you guys a million times, I'm not sure the Internet death penalty is the way forward. And that's what a lot of – like Alex Jones got the Internet death penalty for the terrible things he said and did. And it's like, was that really fair? Should it have been the internet death penalty? With the whole Sandy Hook thing where he was saying it was a hoax and some of the parents were getting harassed, any particular video which led to that happening, yeah, maybe you could argue that's a direct threat, so you've got to pull down those specific videos, but they banned them from the, every platform. And they did it like that, and it was the death penalty. Is that fair? I don't, I don't know if the internet death penalty is fair. I don't think so. So it's just it's so arbitrary. And who's going to watch the Watchmen? Who's going to fact-check the fact-checkers? who really is going to be ultimately objective about all this stuff. It's not possible. So either you open up Pandora's box and everybody bans everybody, and you know we have authoritarianism across the board and no free speech on social media platforms, which is the world's public square, or you do the right thing and you abide by the principle of free speech and you try to be as hands-off as humanly possible within reason. So anyway, that's my spiel on this. Um, if you don't think it's a little silly that Trump is gone, but... Taliban isn't, I don't know what to tell you. This isn't a partisan point for me. It's just a principled point, and clearly the way they're approaching this makes no sense. Okay, next. So we have yet another company that has been outed and exposed for being pretty terrible to their workers. Last time it was uh, Frito-Lay, which is a company that's underneath Pepsi. Um, as the CEO was making $14 million or $15 million, workers were working 70 days in a row, and um, just some of them had, like, pretty much no time off, and some people had died from being overworked, and the factory didn't have climate control, and so it was too hot or too cold at various times of the year. all these problems. Well, now we know that uh, the Nabisco, the company that makes Oreos and Ritz, they are working their people to the bone. Take a look at this. People can
3: be forced to working up to 60 60- Days. I've personally worked 45 days in a row without a day off. We want to be treated like we're people instead of like slaves.
4: The company has never given us anything. The corporate greed is taking everything away. And we'll be out here until we can stop corporate greed. <laughs>
3: buy a kids a boy we
4: bet you buy a chips. who can resist the cold buttery milk in your mouth taste of lips
6: Oreo, unlock the magic No let go. No. No.
2: in the last negotiation that were all takeaways. They wanted to take our overtime away. They wanted to put us on a seven day work schedule, 12 hour days.
3: They currently want to change our overtime pay so that if you work all that time, you will end up eventually getting paid less for working that amount of time. $10,000
0: $10,000 a year off for all the workers across the board.
5: They've actually closed two factories recently, and and they don't disclose where the production's going, but we know it's going to Mexico.
6: That sucks. I just started 55 years
0: old, got 37 years. With the COVID-19, I don't know who's going to hire me right
4: now. Is everything going to Mexico? All of them. I grew up with Nabisco products. Oreo, cream and crackers, Chipahoys. I knew they were made here. I knew they were made around the corner for where I live. To see those things go to another country where people are making less pay and the company is still making billions, it's disheartening.
6: I've been here... Since uh, 1987, so I guess it'd be 34, 35
4: years, this company has actually squeezed everything out of it they could. They don't even want us to step onto the grass of the
0: property, so they're putting a fence up right on the property line. They're basically kicking employees to the curb.
4: We want that community to support us. We want America to support us. We, we don't want you to buy Nabisco products, not during our strike. When we come back to work, we want you to support Nabisco products. The only Nabisco products made in America. If you read the back of the label, it will say made in America or made in Mexico or made in Canada. And we want to keep our jobs in America. We want to keep middle class. And right now, they're trying to
1: destroy it all. Yet again, More Perfect Union doing some incredible work there. Credit to them. Um, look at that. They shut a factory in New Jersey and Atlanta and outsourced the jobs. Um, Trump ran as the anti-outsourcing president, and a lot of people don't know this, but his 2017 uh, tax cut bill actually incentivized outsourcing. It incentivized corporations to set up shop overseas and get rid of jobs here in the U.S., and so that's exactly what's happening here. New Jersey and Atlanta, factories closed. Um, They say It'll say made in Mexico, made in Canada, or made in America on the product, and so they're saying, hey, take a look. If it says made in America, buy it, but don't buy anything now because – They're on strike. Um, I mean, look at the fact there. 60 or 70 days in a row, a lot of people work. That guy who talked worked for 45 days straight, 45 days straight. Um, They made $3.5 billion, but they're trying to take away overtime pay and do a seven-day work schedule and 12-hour days. How does it get to this point, man? How does it get to this point? This is out of this world. And it really is just a reminder that we really need policies in this country that are even more aggressive than I thought. So maybe there should be a hard cap on the number of time, on the amount of time that somebody could work, you know. Maybe there should be a hard cap per week on how many hours you can work. Um, and obviously, this goes without saying, you, all the laws should not be to incentivize outsourcing. It should, the laws should uh, incentivize staying here in the U.S. Maybe businesses get a special subsidy or a special tax break if they keep jobs in the U.S. And if they outsource it, you tax them more and make it not worth their while and not worth their time. Um, Obviously, U.S. leaders have taken the opposite approach, whether it's with NAFTA or CAFTA or the World Trade Organization or permanent normal trade relations with China. Um, This has hollowed out America's working class. And so many people are screwed because of the corruption and the policies that we have as a result of that corruption. So we got to end the outsourcing. we got to keep the jobs here. we got to have better overtime pay laws. We have to have hard cap on the amount of time that you work, paid vacation time by law. Um, I think you should have unions that are basically universal or near universal where the default is you're in a union and you have to opt out if you want out. Um, I mean, if we don't do it, we're screwed. Workers are totally screwed. And it's not a coincidence that at the time when the middle class of the U.S. was the strongest, it was when unionization rates were the highest. That is not a coincidence. So solidarity uh, with these workers. I don't know how how hot you guys are on economic boycotts, but if you are inclined to do economic boycotts, listen to them and don't get Nabisco products until there's some sort of deal made. But listen, even with the Frito-Lay thing, the union negotiated a deal that was like, Still not great. Like it was only they get a day off guaranteed per week. That's the deal. They were protesting all that time, and that was the deal. When their pay basically hadn't gone up in like a decade, and it um, you know the, wasn't climate controlled in the factory, so people would get heat exhaustion, or people would be too cold in the winter. All these issues, and that was what they were able to negotiate. It just shows how much of a stranglehold these corporations have on everybody. They have a stranglehold on the workers. They have a stranglehold on the government. So you got to get the corruption out of the government and have representatives who actually represent the people. And you got to have strong unions. And it is a little overwhelming when you see how ter- Disney treats their workers terribly. frito treats their workers terribly. Nabisco does. It's like so rare that you find genuinely good corporations. The, the one that has the best reputation that I know of is actually Costco. Um, but all the other, Sam's Club is like part of Walmart. And we all know how terrible Walmart can be. And see what's going on with all these stories we're covering. But don't get overwhelmed. Get busy. Get active. You know, uh, unionize. Get involved in a union. Um, protest on specific issues. Work on specific issues. Try to get it on direct ballot initiatives, whether it's raising the minimum wage to a living wage or pro-union legislation like the PRO Act or whatever it might be, because we've got so many problems to address. And this gives you a sense of the scope and how terrible it really is. Okay, next. So I got a lot out of this next segment. This uh, made me giggle, made me smile. Right-wing psychos have turned on each other now. So Mike Lindell, the MyPillow guy, has been doing this stop the steal, the election is fraudulent stuff, and he's all in on it. He did this cyber symposium, as he called it, where he laid out all the evidence. And, of course, experts across the board are like, this isn't evidence of what you say it is. He didn't even – he accused a specific county in a specific state of 3,200 and some odd votes were flipped from Biden to Trump, and I can prove it. And the head of the election in that county was like, you have no idea what you're talking about. We're not even connected to the Internet. And the claim was that China hacked that county – through the Internet. So, you know, this is why Dominion, now I'm not, I don't like private companies being involved in elections at all. We shouldn't have that at all. But this is why Dominion is suing, you know, Mike Lindell and Lynn Wood and Rudy Giuliani and Sidney Powell and whoever else are suing all these people because the claims are fraudulent. One American News and Newsmax, claims are not true. They claim Venezuela hacked the election. That was one of the conspiracies. Now apparently it's China or something. So anyway, this guy is going all over the country, face-planting, saying things that are not true, and losing allies. Well, guess what? There's very few who are still going along with Mike Lindell and his MyPillow conspiracy stuff. And uh, one of those outlets is True News. Now, you know True News if you watch this show. Right Wing Watch covers them. We've covered them a bunch. Uh, True News is Rick Wiles' outlet. Rick Wiles is a hardcore right-wing Christian fundamentalist, evangelical, super anti-Semitic. Big time conspiracy theorist. We've covered a thousand segments on him. I highly recommend if you haven't done this yet, if you're new to this show, type in Secular Talk Rick Wilde and just have a field day. Go through a dozen videos and laugh your ass off because this guy's crazy, son. So anyway, True News sent a team to go to Mike Lindell Cyber Symposium because they wanted to learn about the election that's stolen. Because these guys are inclined to believe the Stop the Steal stuff and to agree with Trump and agree with Lindell. Well, guess what? Lindell misfired. And he's now accusing them of being secret lefties watch
6: this we have an intelligence counterintelligence team that was there we're going to investigate all of them I have a report from from our counterintelligence the people that were there um, they've given me this report and this will be ready by tonight um, Antipa um, on our counterintelligence Antipa uh, they were they individuals were, were working with True News, which is a fake news site established by Media Matters for America. Uh, we believe Zachary Patrizio and from Salon was involved. We got them all on tape colluding with masks on. There were people there that said they were from Fox News, but those we believe those were also infiltrators because Fox News was not there. But when you use masks, Brandon, to get into things, I mean, bad people just like you go back to the riots. Across America, they're using mass now to do, to do bad things.
0: As a hey, I gotta say, this, Eric.
6: I am the first person
7: to be accused of being both a white nationalist and an antifa domestic terrorist. <laughs> oh boy! I pull it off. How about that? You did it, Rick. You white a nationalist, war. left-wing antifa domestic terrorist. That that is so bonkers! What I just heard. It really is sad, um, Mr. Lindell, I, I don't know one person at Media Matters, and if they're funding us, their checks are late. <laughs> <laughs> they're about twenty-two years late because I've had to get on my knees and pray every day, and, and uh, for the funds to come in from donations from people around the world. And um, Antifa? Uh, no, we didn't smuggle any Antifa people in. That just that just didn't happen. I don't know one single Antifa member.
0: So, Rick, where's all this coming from?
7: I'm Somebody's not... feeding uh, Mr. Lundell a lot of bad information, and I think he should wise up and uh, take a look at who he surrounded himself with yes. and whether somebody has gotten inside his group and they are now um, turning him into a clown. they destroying his own credibility. Kind of yes. yes. They're destroying you know his, his own credibility. Okay, so he has this... Big, you know, show to show truth, right? Mm-hmm. Just that statement alone about disparaging us, if yes. Just ne- neglects all that stuff that he might have been true, because that is blatant lies. What he's saying, I mean, it's just. that well, I credit him. But he said that he's got count, uh, counterintelligence team that is giving him this report. Is that Mossad? Through Dur- Dirty Dershowitz. Mm. Somebody is feeding him information. So if he's so wrong on us, right, on that intel report, what about the other stuff he's trying to feed the American people about oh, so election? That's, so that's what it's doing to me. I'm, I'm, yeah, <laughs> now I'm in the story. And suddenly how, I, how in the world did I get in the well, Mike Lindell story? You didn't even go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you were working all last week. And so so <laughs> if, if, if he if his sources of information are so faulty, that he accuses True News of being a media matters puppet funded by media, funded me- by media matters, and that we smuggle anti terrorists into meetings. If his information is that faulty, then I can't trust anything Mike Lindell says. Right. And I've been, I've been one guy here through this whole thing that has said, let's hear him out, let's not attack him, let's let's give the man a fair chance to present. It's information That's oh, why that we sent our team out. Yes, that's why we sent Edward and Large. But now, I wouldn't waste a dime on anything Mike Lindell said. this...
1: That is incredible. That's incredible. That's amazing. Where do I even begin with this? If you're going after true news... If they're not right-wing enough for you, nobody's right-wing enough for you. So the MyPillow guy is totally destroying everybody who's an ally to him. They're now, he's now turned on them. He even went after Sean Hannity because Hannity, Hannity won't cover my stuff because he's afraid he's going to get fired, so he's weak or whatever the fuck. No, dude, maybe everybody sort of realizes you're insane. And these people, by the way, would have never turned on Mike Lindell, because they want the Stop the Steal stuff to be true. But now even they're like, well, pfft, obviously I've got to question everything else he's being told, because he's saying stuff about us that's just factually wrong. So just to give you a sense of how right-wing Rick Wiles is, take a look at this stuff. I, I took my own advice and typed in Kyle Kalinske Rick Wiles into YouTube. Look at this. Watch, far-right hosts insanely anti-Semitic tirade. Crazy televangelist turns hard left. No more billionaires. Give the money. Give the poor money. Okay, that one is based as hell. Uh, fundamentalist. God's dealing with false religions by giving Jews COVID. Holy shit. Televangelist is giddy about people going to hell. Creepy televangelist blames Jews for abortion and calls for theocracy. Fundamentalist. God's sending brown invasion to U.S. because he's mad about abortion. See, look at this guy. Fundamentalist TV host makes worst prediction of all time. I'm not sure what that was. Uh, to be honest, and we're not going to watch it now, but knock yourself out if you want to take a look. Right-wing televangelist is super jealous of Ben Shapiro. He said a bunch of anti-Semitic stuff in there, too. Televangelist breaks the record for most unhinged delusional rant. He said gay imperialism is coming. Um, Transgender rights will lead to civil war. These are all the titles of the videos. Christian TV, Atheist and Pagan Nazis Run the U.S. Army. Um, So that looks like that's true news, but it's also Jim Baker, or Rick Wilde was on Jim Baker's show. Right-wing host calls for mass murder of protesters. Barack Obama is a Muslim jihadist. Uh, Anti-vax televangelist who calls COVID God's punishment hospitalized with COVID. That was recent, actually. He he obviously recovered. Gay liberal Nazis run America. God will use Russia to nuke America over transgender rights. Uh, Obama is the ultimate jihadist. Christian fundamentalist blames Las Vegas shooting on LGBTQ Nazis. Conservative host finally acknowledges climate change. I... That's another one that I'm curious about. I have no idea what he said or what he believes, but I guarantee you it's not (laughs) the correct take. God allows Muslim terror as revenge for abortion. Pastors will be tortured in America. Pokemon Go is demonic spiritual warfare used to execute Christians. Christian extremists, people with Zika virus, getting what they asked for. Radio host calls for Muslim genocide. He said Hillary Clinton was stopped by our prayers. Radio host still refuses to believe Mitt Romney lost. Look, you guys can see everything we got here. Find out the issue Kyle defends Ben Shapiro on. Hmm, Interesting. I think that was me defending um, Rick Wiles from, or Ben Shapiro from insanely anti-Semitic Rick Wiles uh, points. But anyway, I digress. Guys, Rick Wiles is as right-wing as right-wing gets. And uh, Mike Lindell turned on him, said he was Antifa or working with Antifa or funded by Media Matters. And so now Mike Lindell has zero allies left, and it's tough watching this guy flame out and the way he's flaming out because, shit, how does this end? Remember, this guy used to be, he admits it, he used to be a crackhead, he was a drug addict, and he, I think he contemplated suicide, and eventually, like, religion brought him out of it or whatever, and then he got super political, but it looks like Homeboy's relapsing or might relapse at some point. So even though politically he's toxic and he's terrible and all that stuff, at this point I just feel bad for him because it's watching, like, The slow implosion of an unwell person. And when Rick Wiles looks sane in comparison to you, you got a lot of work to do, son. Okay. Final story of the day, y'all. Here we go. Is continuing to do very Twitter-like things. Look at the new effort their undertaking. We're testing a feature for you to report tweets that seem misleading as you see them. Starting today, some people in the US, South Korea, and Australia will find the option to flag a tweet as it's misleading after clicking on report tweet. So uh, now they want everybody to rat on everybody, everybody to tell on everybody else. And the fact that they thought this was a good idea is astonishing to me. How do you have an entire boardroom full of complete morons? By the way, they were getting so dogpiled for it. I think there, there was a response that was like, hey, we're just testing it. Everybody relax a little bit. But Who knows if we're going to roll it out everywhere. We're just seeing because there's a lot of misinformation and stuff out there. Okay. Obviously, obviously, what somebody who's politically conservative thinks is misleading is very different than what somebody who's politically on the left thinks is misleading. There's all these different political ideologies out there. Obviously, people are not, you know, really neutral or objective or thoughtful in many ways. And so a Ted Cruz fan will look at everything I say, or a Stephen Crowder fan or Ben Shapiro fan will look at everything I say and say, that's misleading. Report every tweet from Kyle. A Kyle Kalinske fan will look at anything Ben Shapiro, uh, anything Ben Shapiro or Stephen Crowder tweets, and they'd say, that's misleading. You got to report that. Now, listen, I'm me, so I'm biased. I obviously think I'm right about what I say, and i Most of the stuff I see from the right is wrong. Most of the stuff I see from corporate Democrats, I think, is wrong. But, like, even given that, I wouldn't want to report it it as misleading. And what happens? It gets a banner. It gets a label. It gets a warning. Because then everything on the site is going to have a warning. Because people are drowning in biases. Because people are just people. You can only remove your blinders as much as possible. The most honest among us are just upfront about what their biases are. You know, I'm upfront about the fact that I I'm social democratic or populist left or libertarian socialist. Like, that's my bias. That's the lend I, lens I view the world through. That's the filter where I take in everything. Now I never twist facts. I look at the facts and I'm honest about them. But then I analyze it through my own perspective because I'm only human. Everybody does that. If they say they don't have any sort of you know, ideology or filter or beliefs or opinions or framework to view the world through, they're not being honest with you. So everybody's just going to rat on everybody else, and everything's going to be labeled misleading. Why would you do that? Why would you do that? I mean, people can test the most basic shit. Go ahead. Try this and see how it goes. You're going to realize it's a mess. You're going to realize it's a disaster, and you're going to realize you're destroying the thing that made – Twitter good in the first place. Like the whole point originally was like, we don't censor. This is just a free and open platform. You say what you want. Just please don't do direct threats of violence and don't dox people. Just common sense, but other than that, say whatever you want. doesn't matter if it's right, wrong, whatever. Just go ahead. Talk. Do your thing. That's what made this place attractive. That's what made originally, originally YouTube attractive. It was an alternative to cable news and to other forms of entertainment. And now they're trying to turn it back into what people were escaping from. Same thing with Twitter. They want to they censor more and ban and deplatform and micromanage, and people don't like that. So is this the thing that's finally going to tank Twitter? Look, maybe they're smart enough to test this and be like, this is terrible and scrap it. I hope that's the case. They got rid of the fleets because they weren't all that popular. Great. They should probably um, get rid of this as well but I can't believe it got through the process where a boardroom talked about it and they agreed this was a good idea. How dumb do you have to be to think this is a good idea? Very dumb. All right, guys. I love you, baby. Everybody have a great rest of the day. I'll talk to you soon. Much love. I'm out. We have a great episode of Crystal Kyle and Friends for you this week. Everybody check that out. Peace, y'all.